Dementia Researcher podcast, talking careers, research, conference highlights, and so much more. Hello and welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast. I'm Dr. Robin Dowlin, and it's my absolute pleasure to be guest hosting today's show. In this episode, we'll be exploring the beautiful intersections where music, arts and inclusivity meet um, and how they transform the experiences of those living with dementia. Joining me are three fantastic guests who've been at the forefront of weaving dementia-friendly initiatives into the rich tapestry of the arts. So we have Holly Marland, who has enriched lives through her commitment to community music projects, um, Dr. Andy Northcott from the University of West London, bringing us insights from academia on the impact of the arts and opera, and Liv McLennan from Sounds Better Community Interest Company, an innovator known for her work in using music as a bridge to memory and joy. Together, we'll uncover the stories behind their inspiring projects, from festivals to operas, and discuss how they're crafting spaces where every note opens doors to accessibility and understanding. And before we get started, just to tell you a little bit about me as well, I'm a researcher at the University of Manchester, and in my work, I look at how we understand and capture the in-the-moment in the musical experiences of people with dementia. But that's enough from me. Let's meet our guests. So before we talk about their individual work, let's get some proper introductions. Holly, can you start us off? Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Well, hi there, Robin. It's lovely to be here. I'm a freelance professional musician and a music for health specialist. And I work in hospitals, care homes and day daycare settings with people of all ages. I've been learning and playing the Kora, which is a traditional West African harp, and I've been playing for about 13 years now, supported by my amazing teacher, Mohamed Saho, who lives in the Gambia. And I started my musical journey on the piano and in the local church choir, and I've always written music, and I've always felt that I wanted to bridge the performer-audience divide, which I felt was always a culturally imposed thing. So I love working within different communities to co-create music and to share ideas together. Thank you, Holly. That sounds wonderful. I'm looking forward to unpicking all of those things with you later in the episode. Andy, can I come to you next? Yeah, of course you can. So I'm Dr. Andy Northcott. I'm a, I hate how long winded my job title is. I'm a senior lecturer of sociology of medicine at the Gellert Institute of Aging and Medicine at the University of West London. <sighs> Takes a deep breath. Um, my main research is sort of unrelated to the arts. If anyone Googles me, you'll find lots of stuff about hospitals. For the last almost 10 years, I've been doing ethnographies of hospital care and observing people living with dementia during unplanned acute hospital admissions. Um, and kind of my side second job, because I, that doesn't take up enough of my time, is trying to make social spaces more accessible for people with dementia. Um, so that started with about seven years ago looking at making cinemas dementia friendly and in the last year I've been working on dementia friendly operas which I'll be talking to you about later. Amazing and welcome to this wonderful field of arts and dementia we're a friendly bunch. <laughs> um, Liv can I ask you to introduce yourself as well? 
Thank you, Robin. Great to be here. So my name's Liv McLennan and I'm a musician and community musician. And I'm based in Wiltshire now. I play the cello and the Highland bagpipes. And But more recently, the ukulele has become quite important to me and in my work as well. And also in my research, I'm a part-time doctoral researcher at uh, the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. And I also run a community interest company called Sounds Better. Thank you so much. It's just wonderful to have such um, an array of expertise within within the, the virtual room. OK, I think it's time that we heard a bit more about your individual um, work. So, Andy, if I come to you first, um, I know opera isn't your first look into dementia, but I'd love to hear hear about how that that came about. How have you become immersed in this this area? Um, it's kind of funny because I've I've been doing ethnographies of hospitals for about ten years, and nobody's ever really cared. <laughs> I've suddenly got into opera, and I've had to make all these various media appearances, and just hope nobody ever asks me anything about opera because. I've only ever been to two operas and I produced one of them. <laughs> it's, uh, um, I, I kind of looked into being able to put on a dementia friendly opera in that um, I'm friends with people who run an, an opera company in Wiltshire, so probably not far from where I live is, um, the music troupe um, with Edward Lambert. And just sort of over dinner, we were talking about him looking for new audiences. And I suggested, well, have you thought about doing dementia friendly performances and sort of from there and probably a glass of wine too many this escalated and before you know we were putting on a production um so beyond my lack of knowledge of opera I'm, I'm much better on sort of hip-hop and 80s pop than I am opera but it's um but it's that for me it's that communal thing and it doesn't really matter if it's opera or if it's a rock gig or if it's stand-up comedy or it's um it could be reggae or heavy metal or anything. It's that communal thing of being in a place, sharing musicians, giving you something powerful, visceral that you latch onto and takes you away from where you are. And also that thing of just being out of the house. I have this big thing of, um, to, to use one in the media, so um, Sir Bobby Charlton died a couple of weeks ago and all the obituaries sort of talked about how he, he lived in the shadow of dementia and this shadow kept coming up. And it's it's taking that out of that, that yes, you have that diagnosis of dementia, but that shouldn't mean that you're stuck in. To quote another musician with David Bowie, it shouldn't be pale blinds drawn all day, nothing to do, nothing to say. You've still got years to go and you've got family and friends and people to see and you should be able to go and see them and if music was part of your life before or even if it wasn't it should still be that really up until the point that it really physically can't be and so we did an opera and I think if you can do an opera you can do anything. Thank you so much and I think it speaks to the real importance of um yeah not as you say not simulating these but actually giving real opportunities for people with dementia to engage with high quality arts in the real world um so i'd love to hear a bit more about about the process you said you've got this kind of full audience um how was that process for you so the opera we came up with the sort of basic idea of the music troupe had a new opera they were going to premiere at the tete tape festival it's called the last siren 
it's a sort of small contemporary chamber opera based on um, the Greek myths, Odysseus and the Sirens willing the ships onto the rocks. Um, and the opera itself, we, we didn't change. It was going to be performed the next day. We had the musicians, we had the singers. So it was, how do we put this on and make it accessible to people living with dementia? That was kind of the tricky bit. That was when I had to put on my Challenge Annika hat and start cold calling venues and seeing what could be done. And we, we really struggled with sort of unanswered emails and venues that wanted to help, but weren't quite sure. And then I stumbled on by the biggest accident. I emailed the London College of Music and I hadn't realised they were actually part of University of West London. And even weirder, I didn't realise that they had a theatre and it was next door to my office had I ever ventured slightly further down the corridor like literally three doors down we had Lawrence Hall this fantastic sort of looks like an old school theatre the sort of um, we always joke it looks like it's where the kids from fame would hang out <laughs> it's just full of all these young people playing music and being very good looking and enjoying themselves and we were like okay so can we use this space um, and they didn't ask any questions they were just like yes, please, how would it work? Can we come in? Everything moves around. What can we do to facilitate this? And once we had a venue, it was really quite easy. I mean, I say easy, I'm an academic and it was in a university. So then I spent two months going through every health and safety and risk and prevent procedure you can think of. But beyond the, the normal university stuff, the actual hosting of the event was, was okay. Actually, in fact, possibly the hardest thing we had was getting an audience so we, we had a venue we had a production we had everything in place but then it's how do you how do you communicate to people living with dementia especially if they're already feeling cut off like I discussed before I'm worried I'm rambling now but I'll keep going <laughs> it's that um you can't just stick it on Facebook or Twitter because not everybody's online and people aren't looking for things and we timed it just for the moment where the Twitter algorithm kind of fell away and all the people who used to see your tweets stopped seeing your tweets anyway so getting the message out was was kind of the tricky part and we had to reach out to lots of organizations and beg for publicity and support but everybody was really helpful with it and we managed to put on the production fill it sell out all the, yeah it was great yeah I think that's such a, a, a wonderful kind of vision for the world and communities to be more dementia friendly so that people can kind of cross those thresholds as it were into these spaces and feel confident that they're going to be supported when they're there no matter what what's going on and perhaps this is a, a good point at which to come um, to you Holly in terms of the um, So Many Beauties Festival I know this is another event that happened within a very established um, arts venue as well so I'd, I'd love to hear about your kind of your your process for developing the festival and, and how it went. I just want to start off by saying that people living with dementia have taught me so much about the joy and potential of being in the present moment and they're constantly amazing me with their wit, wisdom and creativity. So I set up the So Many Beauties project in 2017 with funding from the Arts Council England to work co-creatively with people living with dementia and their communities of care to harness this incredible creativity. And so we work together to compose new music and we work together to devise large scale cultural events that counter, as Andy and yourself have just been talking about, the tragedy narrative. 
And what we're doing is showcasing what people living with dementia can do rather than focusing on what they can't do anymore. So we're currently working on our second large scale dementia friendly music festival, which is going to be at the Bridgewater Hall in Manchester and it's next September on Friday the 20th. So everyone get your diaries out now, put that in. Um, and what we've done is we've brought together a stakeholder group of 18 cultural organisations and dementia support organisations who are working across Greater Manchester. And we're going to be working with members of their dementia support groups to devise all the content for this one day festival. So this includes working with uh, support groups that are for members of the South Asian and African Caribbean communities, as well as with Manchester's LGBTQ plus communities. You're probably familiar with the work that the Bering Foundation has been doing around increasing representation in the dementia and mental health workforces. And so during the pandemic, I formed a collective of musicians from different ethnic backgrounds who are going to be developing their skills in this co-creative practice, working with people living with dementia. And the So Many Beauties Collective recently featured, we had a brilliant project launch at the Bridgewater Hall, a smaller event, just a half day event. And the collective accompanied new music that they'd written and they performed with the AUK Salford's brilliant Buddy Club. And we were so pleased to see the audience who were a complete mix of uh, people living with dementia. We had four different dementia support groups come. We had researchers, we had strategic decision makers from Manchester City Council. And everyone was just really positive about this intercultural co-created programme premiere. No lyric sheets needed. Buddy Club remembered all their new song lyrics and rhythms with no need for prompts. So this really combated the popular belief that only old familiar songs will do. So the festival itself is actually going to be very diverse. We're taking over the entire Bridgewater Hall and we're going to be curating a programme of new music, dance, theatre, workshops, discussions, cabaret, intercultural afternoon tea, whatever our wonderful participants decide that they want to see developed or commissioned. So watch this space. <laughs> That sounds absolutely wonderful. And I've made a note in my diary uh, for next year so that I can hopefully come along. Um, I'm really interested. We hear this word kind of co-creation a lot within this field. What does it look like in practice? So musically speaking, because we're devising new music, we are using musical improvisation as a starting point for creating new songs and new pieces of music. So we will probably build from simple songs um, and we'll try and evolve those. We'll have lyrical development sessions, throwing ideas into the pot, but it's very much about being in the moment and being spontaneous. Uh, we don't want people to to feel hindered you know if they say I don't know that becomes a song lyric you know you you're validating everybody's responses and this enables people's creativity to come tumbling out um, 
So musical improvisation, we use small handheld tuned and untuned percussion instruments as the impetus for creating rhythms and melodies. And then we weave this all together uh, into something that is a high quality piece of public art. In our first project, we actually created an oratorio specifically to challenge this elitist idea of an oratorio and who could write and perform it. And we had an intergenerational choir of uh, age five, I think, to 98, um, a group of 150 people performing that work. So co-creativity is often using present moment improvisation to create something that's much larger scale that can be presented publicly. Um, but we're also doing co-creation around evaluation tools as well. I think there's a saying, I'm not sure of the exact wording, nothing for us without us. Everything that is being developed um, for people living with dementia should be developed with people living with dementia. So this co-creation comes into play, even with the project inception for this festival, we actually spoke to people living with dementia about what they wanted. That's fantastic. And I think it kind of speaks to some of what um, Andy was saying as well. We're kind of looking at involvement and participation in the arts through this kind of lens of, of citizenship, as it were. It's creating spaces where people can have their their voices heard and, yeah, feeling listened to within the process, I think, is incredibly important in a dementia context because so many decisions get taken away from people. So maybe this is a good uh, point, uh, Liv, to bring to bring you in and your work uh, with people. Um, could you tell us a bit about um, Sounds Better as uh, the organisation and um, yeah, how you're approaching using creativity and music and arts with people? Um, yeah, so Sounds Better grew out of a, a collective of freelancers, actually, and we just wanted a bit more control over our work and you know, being able to set up things in our local communities. It's really important to us to, to really live and work and be based and to work with the people we live alongside. Um, so I'm based in Wiltshire. One of my colleagues is based in London and we have projects in our communities. Um, so our work with people with dementia is focused in Wiltshire. And one of the um, challenges that we really face in Wiltshire is that it's a very rural county and there are so many issues around that there's transport there's isolation you know all of these things that aren't easily rectified bigger cities obviously have their own issues too but yeah the challenge of rural living um so we well our dementia work is based in a little village called Downton and it kind of has echoes of what um both Holly and Andy were saying is that we work alongside and with people and very much try and shape the group as to what they want to do. Um, music is at its core and it started off as a, as a kind of pure music project, one where we sang songs that were familiar, did pieces of music that were familiar, but also wrote our own based on our own experiences of life and our memories. Um, so we've got kind of more than an album's worth that I'd love to get recording. <laughs> but at the moment, we are working towards uh, a mini performance. It's very much on a very small scale, you know, nothing compared to Holly's amazing festivals. But we are going to be part of a Christmas tree festival in Salisbury, which is really exciting for me. We're writing our own Christmas carol. 
But because our group also works with people with other health conditions, we're bringing them together. They are writing parts of the Christmas Carol together. We're going to have a practice and then we'll perform together as well. So we're connecting people across um, different health conditions, different communities as well. Um, so we see as our music and our music making and it's all participatory and I suppose co-created. I'll just shy away from that term a little bit, but, you know, we, we work with people. Um, yeah, to try. That's the bridge, really. Music is the bridge to bring people together. And it's so lovely to hear about the intergenerational work and the opera work as well. And just see how so many different forms of music and musicking and different styles can just bring people together. So in essence, it's music with people and music to bridge any divides that might be there. That sounds um, really wonderful. And it's kind of, it sparked this kind of question in my mind. We've kind of been talking about dementia friendly initiatives, whereas some of the language that you're all using comes down to this kind of uh, dementia inclusive. So it's beyond the kind of dementia friendly, it seems, the work that you're doing. So in terms of that rural context, could you tell me a bit more about the kind of, um, yeah, how you develop those sense of connection through music when people are kind of not next door to each other say in terms of physical location good question it's around experience I think and life experience and what you find when you get people in a room together no matter where they're from or where they live there's always a commonality and that's obviously our humanness but we have experiences that we can draw on that are probably similar to someone sat next to us, whether that's travel or whether that's having a family or you know, throughout the life course, there are things that connect us. So it's really trying to draw on those and draw on our, our, our togetherness, our humanness, our connections, uh, and using that as the basis to then take that forward to a group um, song or piece of music or production, whatever that looks like, whatever the group decides. Um, so we're kind of going from individuals to a group really kind of using that um that sense of relationship and relational music making to to bring people together that's really fantastic I love the kind of yeah the different ways in which people can connect without words as well in those situations music can provide opportunities for that that self-expression so just picking up on that and maybe it's something that you're kind of thinking about more widely in your your role outside of this um uh, the CIC I'd, I'd love to hear more about how what you've learned doing the kind of practical on the grounds grassroots music making with people with dementia has has kind of impacted on you in your kind of research when you put your research hat on yes um so my own research is intergenerational music making in care homes so as we know a huge proportion of people in care homes live with a dementia um so in terms of the impact on research, I think the way I see it is that it has to be meaningful for the people taking part, um, the, the subjects, I suppose, or mine's practice research. So actually I take everything from my practice and it becomes my research when I'm in that kind of project context anyway. So it is things you know, like ensuring that everyone understands what we're doing, that everyone can participate to a level that they are comfortable with if they choose to and if they want to. Um, the ability to say no and withdraw, absolutely fine with that. Um, so all those kind of underpinning values that I have as a practitioner, I take into my research as well. And 
I think one of the things that I find interesting when people talk about oh, doing the ethics form and that kind of thing, well, for me, that's absolutely common sense. And it's just, you know, I have to put it in slightly different language in my ethics form, but I'm like, well, this is what I do every day. And it always surprises me when people aren't working in that way, in that inclusive, in that uh, mindful way about other people. Um, so yeah, it's, it's that kind of taking those values, those underpinning values of social justice and inclusion and um, yeah, really being intrigued about other people and then transferring that exactly into my research. Absolutely fascinating and resonates a lot with, um, I'm sure both um, Holly and, and Andy as well in terms of the work that, that they've been doing. I'm really interested just as kind of a, a broad question and I can come to you each in turn uh, about this but obviously we've talked about the kind of the process of it happening but I'm just interested to know what what was your biggest kind of takeaway at this moment in time from a recent project or something like that something that's just stood out to you in terms of the impacts that this work can have on people with dementia so maybe Holly if I come to you first Crikey, I've got a takeaway bag the size of the moon. <laughs> but um, I think it was um, people's responses to hearing different types of music. When I worked with members of the collective, we took um, a wonderful Egyptian musician, Mina Salama, brought all his incredible ouds and nay flutes and all these sounds that people might have heard, in, heard on film soundtracks, but they'd never actually experienced close to. And to see the delight and intrigue of predominantly white British group that we were working with in hearing sounds from other cultures and the gospel music, the Turkish song, and just how that sparked um, conversations around um, intercultural collaboration. And I think that's something that our world needs so much at the moment. So this open dialogue, as you were saying, Liv, this sort of interest and appreciation for each other's cultural differences, as well as our human similarities. So I think for me, um, seeing an audience that was quite ethnically diverse itself respond so positively to something new and intercultural and having conversations uh, was really what was um, fantastic from our September launch. Wow, that's amazing and, and really speaks to the how we define community in this day and age when we have so many different people, different voices who can be part of these these conversations and, and creative activities. How about you, Andy? What's your kind of biggest thing that you've taken away in terms of the impacts? The key takeaway you always take away is kind of what you just said. It's it's when you witness the power that music has on an audience and an audience living with dementia is no different to any other audience that and they're, they're taken to another place while that's happening. Um, I think the biggest takeaway I've had from putting on events is getting over. So we talk about making things dementia friendly and you have all these things around risk and things and you have to go through all of this. OK, so we're going to have a quiet space over here. We're going to signpost the toilets. We want to make sure this, this, this happens. And if this happens, we can do it. And all these things are necessary in a way. But in all my time of doing dementia-friendly opera and I did dementia-friendly cinema in Cardiff for years before that, I've never used any of them. Once the event starts, people are taken with the event, with the music, with the spectacle. And when an opera is going, it's very hard not to be taken in. It's this incredibly loud, powerful thing. It's very visceral to be part of. And all of our feedback said that was this was something new. People hadn't heard this before, but it didn't matter. It took them to a new place. 
but then when everyone's left, you have all the people from the venue, all the people that you've given the, the sort of swift, dementia-friendly training and the volunteers, and, and they're all thinking, well, I didn't need to be here. Good. Well, you did need to be here, but you were a safety net that we never really needed. And that says something about why aren't more events dementia accessible? Because when we make these things dementia accessible, we don't really use any of the dementia accessible stuff anyway. It's just sort of there just in case. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'll tie a bit into a question that I've got to kind of round us off in a few minutes. But Liv, I was just wondering if you had any kind of key takeaways from this type of way, well, this way of working. I think because my work is participatory rather than focused on a performance, we don't have an audience in the same way, although we're all performers and all audience. And, uh, you know, there's all kind of underlying theories around that. But I kind of just made a little note for myself there, but we have different ways of knowing as people and we have different ways of being as well. And I think the way my work or, you know, any kind of music related work in dementia, you know, it enables those different ways of knowing and different ways of being to really come to the fore. And because it's relational as well, people can relate to others in a different way. And also it can help reconnect people. So um, if we have a person living with dementia and their care partners or care team, you know, things can get quite tough and it is a way of reconnecting them to kind of get to their essence um, and to see people in a, either a different way or to be reminded of the person that, that they fell in love with or that, you know, they grew up with, whatever that relationship is. And that is so powerful and it can help to give people the resilience and the strength to carry on another week uh, in, in a caring role, for example, because that can be quite tough. Um, so, yeah, just that way of connecting and different and a different way of being with someone else is so important, particularly with the challenges that dementia can bring as well. Absolutely. And I think between the three of you, you have such a wealth of kind of, I guess it's embodied expertise in terms of how you're working with these people, but also the kind of practical skills, knowledge, experience to be able to facilitate things like this. So I know in the kind of broader dementia landscape, there are more and more initiatives that are looking to become dementia friendly, dementia inclusive. So I guess one of my questions to you is to kind of flip it on its head and maybe Andy, this is something you might want to jump in on in terms of um, accessibility in the first instance is what makes an arts venue place space dementia friendly for this work to happen in? What needs to be put in place to to allow for the successes that you've, you've observed? I think most places are accessible and wheelchair accessible and everything else. I think an issue we have with venues is the assumption that a person living with dementia is living in a care home, is not able to move around independently, and it forgets all those stages from diagnosis through to, there is a group of people living with dementia, with advanced dementia, that perhaps it would be a challenge to move into a, a venue because of mobility issues. But that's a very small section of late stage people living with dementia. And it's everyone else in between. And a lot of them, it's not as if people are coming on their own. Most people coming to events are coming with somebody. We did have people come to the opera on their own. It's brilliant. People with early stage from a diagnosis came on their own, got themselves to the venue, came on the tube or the bus because dementia is such a wide spectrum of people. Um, but you had other people that did need help 
Um, and our biggest issue was parking. You go through all of these things for dementia friendly and the thing that comes down to it is parking close to the venue and being able to help people out with cars. Um, and that's not to belittle the idea of making things everything. We should do everything we can to make things more dementia friendly, dementia accessible. And the more we can do to do that, to promote it and everything else. But the reality of it is any building can be dementia friendly. It just has to be willing to promote it. And hopefully we get to a point where we don't have to promote it. And just a cinema is both a dementia friendly cinema and a cinema. A gig venue is dementia friendly and we shouldn't have to put a special thing if this is an accessible performance it should just be accepted that it's a performance and some people there might have dementia but um until we get there it's it's what we need but uh, we're gonna with my research we're gonna keep we've got another event coming up in february which we're gonna do at, um not at university of west london at a separate venue hopefully we have the same things we'll put all the dementia friendly things in place to make it safe and to manage risk again hopefully we won't need them and then we can come up with some sort of blueprint which will help venues to be able to do this and to promote it further and it doesn't have to be opera it can be anything i think that's fantastic and i think you've highlighted such an important point in terms of um the kind of the assumptions of others are often the biggest barriers in terms of whether someone can or can't access something i mean in my own my own research work it tends to be things like automatic taps and things like that that are the things that people pick up on when they're auditing a space like this um and so it's actually the performance itself being as inclusive as possible and then just putting stuff around it to make it um yeah and, and there's parts i know in my other research for my hospital hat on there's a big thing to to make hospitals dementia friendly there was this big thing to paint toilet doors yellow and I was thinking, unless toilet doors are yellow at their house, what, why would yellow mean toilet? So sometimes we we push things too far and forget that the toilet's a toilet and the toilet at the venue, as long as there's a sign saying to anyway. I'm, I'm wittering now. I'll let you move on to everyone else. Not at all. Holly or Liv, do you have any uh, thoughts on that? It's really interesting to to hear Andy's experience and obviously recognising that if we've met one person living with dementia, we've met one person living with dementia. I think what we tried to do with the way we ran the festival was to curate the experience so that it wasn't an overload from the get-go. So as soon as people arrived, we thought about how to uh, make the space tranquil and able to um, orientate yourself in the space by having live harp music um, just to settle people down. We curated the flow of the festival so that people uh, weren't overfaced with choice, but yet there were choices. It felt like a festival, you know, it was quite chaotic and, and lively and loud, but we kind of built the whole scope of the day so that we curated the event so that there were quiet times, there were quiet rooms, which Andy has mentioned already. I think one of the most important things, I don't know if you can see it, we, we had these yellow happy to help badges and I think most of making things dementia friendly comes down to people's awareness of what dementia actually is and the fact that it's an umbrella term for over a hundred different diseases of the brain and I think it is helpful for people to know that people's visual um, visuals can be impaired through certain types of dementia so they might see something on the floor if the carpets um, got some uh, dark flooring they may see it as a whole so just to have people on hand who are aware of these things um, who can guide people and help them on a hu human level I think Andy's quite right signposting with yellow signs and all this kind of stuff is all very well and good but what it comes down to is people guiding and making 
people feel comfortable in the space, which is what uh, we were very careful to do. And we did work with the Bridgewater Halls venue staff. We created um, a package that was drawing from some of the Alzheimer's um, dementia-friendly awareness sessions, but we also made it music-specific. How can you help somebody? Don't tower over them, you know, consider bringing yourself to eye level with somebody, um, especially if they're in a wheelchair, to talk to them rather than towering over them. Just these tiny little details of human interrelation can make a massive impact on whether an event is inclusive or not. You put that much better than me, Holly, thank you. <laughs> not at all. I just paraphrased you wildly. <laughs> Thank you so much. Liv, did you have any thoughts on this? I do fully agree with Holly and Andy, and it is just the ways of being um, a venue staff, really, because a building is a building and there are little things you can do, but lighting or having it at a particular time of day that might be more useful. But actually it is, you know, the people and how they support other people, regardless of a diagnosis or not, and accepting people for who they are when they walk in and not trying to put expectations, um, behaviour or otherwise onto those people. I think that's a way to kind of be dementia friendly is to accept that people with dementia, um, you know, they behave as all humans do. We all behave differently and like accept that. And that's OK. We can be ourselves in the space, that welcoming, inclusive space. Absolutely. So well said. Um, and honestly, I could talk about this for a lot longer than we have uh, available to us today. But I just have one final question um, about the kind of um, so many of our listeners will be early career researchers or perhaps practice based researchers uh, like yourself live um, and they'll be wanting to organize events like this or work with communities. Um, so I just really wanted to um, pick your brains, maybe a one or two sentence answer about what your hopes are for research or practice in this space going forwards. Um, Holly, maybe I'll start with you. I would be really keen to um, for researchers to address the current underrepresentation of people from different ethnic communities in the research uh, story. And I think the most important way is not to make assumptions. We've talked about assumptions before. I think to go out and see good practice, go and talk to organizations like Touchstone in Leeds, who are really paving the way for fantastic provision for their BME communities. Um, go out and observe and listen to before you make any decisions on what your research questions are going to be and really try and listen to and understand people who come from different cultural backgrounds. That's so important. Thank you, Holly. Um, and Liv? Good question. Um, I think for me as a community musician practice researcher, it would be about how um, how community music works in this space. So we have a lot of what are the outcomes, what are the benefits, yada, yada, yada. What actually happens? Uh, you know, we can't articulate, we're not articulating that in research. Um, and it's not about, oh yes, it's this welcome song and that goodbye song. You know, what are those processes? What actually happens? What underpins our sessions with people with dementia? So I'm very intrigued about that. What happens in rooms uh, to get to these? outcomes benefits um so if anyone else wants to help me take on that mantle let's chat <laughs> yeah that's absolutely uh, music to my ears uh Liv. um andy what would you say about this um, 
I mean, if I was speaking directly to early career researchers, if you've got an idea for an event, my advice would be go out there and do it. Go and speak to the local theatre, the local cinema, a local bar. Go and speak to local groups of people living with dementia and put on the event. Just go and do it. This is your chances to almost do something outside of the boundaries and rigours of academia. You don't need peer review for this. You don't need to apply for funding that you know even though your idea is brilliant only 10% of people are going to get that and all of those irritants <laughs> sort of haunts early career academia um you you don't need your supervisor's permission you just need to think of what you want to do and then go out there and set it up and it might be something that you want to do that you think other people will enjoy and then just be ready that they might not enjoy it or it might be something that you want to co-produce with people living with dementia and you can go and speak to them and then all those things that we talk about as being really difficult of building up networks of diverse people living with dementia you'll have found a shortcut to do it because you've had an audience you've spoken to them you can you know what they like it will not only help you and it will help people living with dementia but it will help your research it will help your networks it helps everybody so go out and do it do an event everyone should do it Oh, well, hopefully we've had some people uh, very inspired by what's been said during this episode and we'll have um, some more um, events popping up, cropping up in the future. I'll certainly be keeping an eye out for them myself. Um, I'm I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. I really enjoyed today's um, discussion. Um, and if you want to find out more, um, you can have a look at the Dementia Researcher website where you'll find a full transcript and biographies of all our guests, blogs and much more on the topic. So I'd just like to uh, extend my thanks to our incredible guests today, uh, Liv McLennan, Holly Marland and Andy Northcott. Um, and I'm Robin Dowlin and you've been listening to the Dementia Researcher podcast. The Dementia Researcher podcast was brought to you by University College London with generous funding from the UK National Institute for Health Research, Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Alzheimer's Association and Race Against Dementia. Please subscribe, leave us a review and register on our website for full access to all our great resources. DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk